Good morning, City Light. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you here. Good to see you on this nice fall day in all of your sweaters and scarves. It is the season. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to hit the last verse of chapter 2 because it's a fun one. And then we're going to hit the first seven verses of chapter 3, which are not so fun. And so if you would get there in your Bibles, Genesis 2 and 3. This is going to be the first of three weeks in which we're going to be teaching on the fall of man. How and when sin entered into the human equation through our first parents in the Garden, And so last week, Pastor Doug got to preach a really encouraging sermon on the first ever wedding. It was really cute, fun, encouraging. And this week, I get to preach on the first ever sin. And so I'm not sure how that deal got worked out, but uh, go ahead and prepare yourself emotionally and set your expectations accordingly, okay? Talking about sin today. Now, Genesis 3, though it be one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture, is a very important chapter in Scripture. Because what it does, it explains to us why the world is the way that it is, why you and I are the way that we are, and why we experience what we do. Up until this point, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, everything is good. God creates the world, it's good. He creates man and woman in his image and likeness, they are very good. He places them in the garden and everyone is having a good time. Everyone's naked, singing songs, eating fruit, in a garden, someone say amen. So good day. We have a good creator. He gives good gifts to his good children. Uh, Seven verses later, man and woman are filled with shame. They are hiding from God, hiding from each other. Clothes have entered the human equation. Uh, They are blame shifting. Uh, The woman is following the serpent. The man is following the woman. No one is following God and everything is in a dark place. From really good to really bad in seven verses, that's what we're studying today. Uh, not only are we studying it historically, but um, this is some bit of important anthropology for us to understand um, why, why things are the way they are. As I said, every one of us, every human being, you and me, have felt the effects of the story that we're going to read this morning. Every one of us has been born into a world that is not as it uh, should be. And even the atheist or the non-believer would agree there is an intuitive sense that says this is not quite the way it should be. Sin has entered the human world. We see it on the news. We see it in our families. We see it in our own hearts. And so this morning, as we take a look for the first time at Genesis chapter 3, I want to remind you, we do believe this story to be historical and factual, but we also see in it the very pattern and prototype of our own sin. All of us, just like our first parents, hear the voice of the serpent still speaking to us today, luring us into pride and rebellion, and all of us to this day have taken and do take the forbidden fruit. And so I want us to understand the way uh, the devil tempts us in looking at his first temptation this, this morning. And uh, as I preach, one of the darkest moments in all of human history, and maybe the most depressing sermon ever, I do want to leave you with some hope. Because it's only against the dark backdrop of the sin of the world that the light of the gospel really shines, right? And we see in this um, just the absolute depravity of the condition that we were in. And we see the desperation that we have for a Savior. And we remember that we stand on this side of the cross. That our Savior has come. He has come to take away all of the effects of the fall. And he has come to do it for you and for me. And so I want to leave us with a little bit of encouragement uh, at the end of the morning together. And also, I I would invite you to dial in, because as I said, um, the devil still is prowling about today, and he is a bit of a one-trick pony. He has 
one trick that he plays. He's a one-note Johnny. He has one song that he sings, and he sings it to you and to me, and it's the same song that he sang to Adam and Eve. And 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says, we are not to be unaware of his schemes. So this morning, uh, we're, we're both going to get to know God better, our own sinful hearts better, and our enemy better, that we might be able to stand his attempts, or withstand and resist his attempts and his temptations into our lives. And so here we go. I want to preach a sermon called Deception, the Devil, and the Descent of Man. Chalk that up as the best title ever. Uh, Deception, Descent, Positive, Encouraging, City Light Church. Here we go. Uh, I don't have much of an outline. Instead, we've got eight verses. I'm going to let the the narrative of the text carry us along, and we're just going to get caught up in the story and teach it as it unfolds this morning. Here we go, verse 25. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. For some of you, this is your favorite Bible verse, right? I know some people, they know this one. They know that our Lord turned water into wine, and they know that he said, thou shall not judge. And they've just, that kind of rounds out their whole theology. That's their whole scripture memory. And, uh, uh, you know, I would just encourage you to read a little more broadly in scripture. And so the man and his wife were naked, and they had no shame. And let me unpack that. What that means is this. They were naked before God, and they were naked before each other. The, the idea of clothes had never occurred to them. What that means is before sin entered the human equation, only innocence and openness um, um, prevailed in the human experience. And so before God, there was no need for a quiet time. There was no need for devotions. They were with God all the time. They enjoyed God. They walked with God and enjoyed his fellowship. Relationship with God was as easy as breathing. They're naked before God and they're naked before each other. There is no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's no hiding. There's no protecting. There's only trust. It was the perfect marriage. The marriage that we all long for. Absolute intimacy. There was nothing hidden from each other. There was no need to defend or protect. We call this both communion with God and community with each other. That is what God designed us to be. And so verse 25 is the pinnacle of God's good creation, naked and unashamed, eating grapes, singing songs, and here's where it all goes downhill. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Anyone crafty in here? That's when you're like, yeah, I don't know that I want to raise my hand right now. My wife sells stuff at this thing called junk stock. It's where all the crafty people go in the city. It's amazing. You know what they do? They take junk and they sell it to you for lots of money. It's worth nothing. They got it out of their grandpa's barn, painted on it with some sort of stencil, and now they want $35 for it, right? They're selling you junk. So uh, good work to you if you can do that, and shame on you if you buy it. I'll show you. Or some abandoned barns are, but that's our enemy. He's, he's crafty. He takes junk and he sells it to us and we buy it. He sells us junk. Uh, let me unpack this really quick, right? In, in, the, in the scripture, um, this guy comes out of nowhere. Where does the serpent come from? Well, uh, let me just hit this really quick. From the rest of scripture, especially Revelation, we learn that the serpent is in fact the devil. The devil shows up in the form of the ser- serpent to, to test and to tempt our very first parents in the, <clears throat> excuse me, the garden. 
And so this actually starts before Genesis 3. We don't know when. Scripture doesn't detail it in great detail. Um, but we do learn that God, in the beginning, created all the beings that there are. And so he creates human beings. In the world, in the physical form, he creates you and me. He also creates spiritual beings in the spiritual realms that we in the Bible call angels. We know from Ezekiel and Isaiah, chapters 28 and chapters 14, um, that somewhere before this moment in the heavenly realms, there was a revolt. And one third of the angel army joined up with one of the lead angels. His name was Satan in rebelling against God. And the motivating factor for this lead angel was pride. This angel didn't want to be with God. He didn't want to serve God. He wanted to be God. And so he gathers for himself an army. They rebel, get themselves kicked out of heaven, and they now prowl about the earth as they do today. They tempted our first parents, and they tempt you and me, and they are crafty. They sell garbage, and we buy it, right? Uh, the, the serpent, it says, was crafty. It means he's deceptive. He's slick. He often goes unnoticed, um, but he is strategic. He's strategic in what he does, and as we take a look at his uh, one-note song that he sings, I want us to pay attention, because this is not only um, our adversary coming against our first mother in the garden, this is the same lies that he tells us. And so pay attention to this, and, and maybe we would self-diagnose some areas that we are, too, believing the devil's lies. And so if we go on with verse 1 and part B, it says this, He, that's the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say to you? You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. A few things here I want to show you uh, from just 1B. Uh, first thing is this. The, the word, you're not going to pick up on it in your English Bible. But in the Hebrew, the, the word that the devil uses here for God is Elohim. This is his generic name. In all of chapter 2, as God intricately and intimately creates the man and the woman, the, the name that is used for God is Yahweh. It's his covenant name, his relational name, right? He has a formal name, Elohim, that's just God, and he has a relational covenant name, Yahweh. And what Satan does is he no longer uses God's relational covenant name, he's going to use his generic name. Uh, think of it like this. I have uh, you know, a few names. Uh, some of you have called me other things, an email, but we'll, we'll get through that. Um, but usually I have two names that I respond to. It's usually Gavin or it's Dad, right? For, there's three humans on this earth that know me by a relational name that's unique from my formal name. So you will probably call me Gavin. My son calls me Dad. Now, can my son call me Gavin? Yes, he can, and sometimes he does, and that's usually not in a good moment, right? It's usually a subtle jab, right? It's a way to kind of weaken that relationship so as to um, um, not denote the, the intimacy, the relationship, the unique bond that we have with each other. If you've ever called your mom or dad by their formal names, it's usually a sign of subtle disrespect. It's a distancing of that relational component. That's what the devil's doing. He's going to get inside Eve's head, and he, and, he, and he wants to distance the thought of God's relational investment in her life and refer to him by his more generic name. And so I want to ask you, did you know the devil would love for you to think of God in the same way? When you think of God, what's, what do you think of? How, how do you relate to him? Do you think of him as some distant, cold, aloof force kind of a deistic God that spun the world into existence and, and he maybe kind of hears your prayers, but he's generally uninvested in your life. That's exactly what the devil would love for you to believe. 
If you are in Christ, God is your father. He knows you. He speaks your name. He bends his ear to listen to you. You have a covenant relationship with him. And the devil would like for you to think of him as nothing more than a deistic being or force. Because it's a lot easier to sin against a cold, distant force than it is your loving, invested, caring, relational father. First thing the devil wants to do with Eve is distant that relationship. Now look at this. Second thing that the adversary is going to do, he's going to challenge the word of God. He's going to come after this book, God's spoken word and what God had said in the garden. And uh, let me show you this first. He, he doesn't immediately just come right after the Bible and God's word and say it's not true. He's a little more subtle and seductive than that. The first thing he's going to do is ask a seemingly harmless question. Did God really say? Did God really say? He wants to plant a seed of doubt. Rather than coming a full frontal assault on the word of God, he's going he's gonna to plant a seed. Is that really what God said? If God can get, uh, or if the devil can get us to doubt the word of God, his work is already almost finished. And so let me ask you, how do you view the word of God? Is it historical fiction? Is it religious folklore? Is it the archaic thing of, of libraries and your grandparents' religion, or is it the spoken living word of God? The devil would love you to question God's word. Uh, second, he's actually going to twist God's word. So he doesn't only ask you the question, did God really say? Pay attention to what he does subtly and seductively. He says this, did God really say, verse uh, one and a half, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? No, God didn't actually say that at all. Let me show you what God did say. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. It's on the screen. It says this. It says that God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of what? Every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For if you do, you shall surely die. Do you see what the devil's doing there? He's trying to paint a picture of God that is different than he is. What did God really say? You can eat of any tree in the garden. I imagine there are thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of trees that our first parents could have eaten from. I want you to know that God is a God of great liberty and generosity and freedom for his people. He gives them thousands upon thousands of things that they can do, and he gives them one restriction that they can't do. And what does the devil want to do? He wants to draw their attention to the one thing that they can't have, right? It's the way it works. Like right now, look anywhere in this room except for my shoes. No one look at my shoes. You're all thinking about my shoes, right? That's the way we work, and the devil knows that. And he would, you can look now. It's not like a sin. That was just an illustration. <laughs> the devil knows that. And he's going to draw our attention to the one thing that we can't have and hold it out like a carrot. Now, I want you to know that, man, pay attention to God's generosity. Think of the great freedoms that he has given us and the very few restrictions that he has given us. It's for our good. Uh, think of it this way. My wife and I have three small children at home, and we, actually, they're here. We didn't leave them at home with the dog. They're here. Uh, my wife and I have three children that go home with us, and we live on a house uh, just off Dodge Street, and it has very busy traffic, because all of you drive through my neighborhood to get to Chipotle and Starbucks, and you don't know it, but you speed. Criminals. 
Uh, I've seen some of you. Anyway, our street is very busy and people ignore the speed limit sign. And I'm the overprotective dad that like yells at people in the street, slow down. I mean, I chase them. It's created some awkward moments in our neighborhood. Um, But for this reason, um, we have a backyard with a fence. And because I love my kids and I want to give them great freedom and liberty to play and enjoy themselves, I have one rule, play in the backyard, not in the front yard. And so there is a boundary. There is a fence. Is that fence there to restrict my children's freedom? No. It's to protect their freedom so that they might enjoy life, so that they might thrive and engage each other and climb trees and have great freedom. And I've given them lots of liberties and I've given them very few restrictions. Like, don't play with knives, stay in the backyard, and don't bite each other. I mean, it's very few restrictions. Everything else is on limits. You bite the dog, that's on you. You do your thing, right? (laughs) Lots of liberties, a few restrictions. That's our God. That's our God. Every restriction that he gives us, he puts in place to protect the freedoms that he has given us because he loves us. But what does the devil want to do? He wants to draw our attention to the one tree that we can't have. Isn't God so prude? Isn't he strict, so domineering, controlling? How unreasonable is this God? God's just trying to hold you back. If you could, if you could just remove God's restrictions, then you would be happy and have what you want. Then you'd be free to make decisions for your life as you see fit. Forget honoring and obeying God. He is restricting you. True freedom comes when you can climb over the fence, escape the moral handcuffs, and do what you want to do. This is what we do. We ignore the 10,000 trees of freedom that God has given us, and we focus on the one thing that we're not supposed to have. Now watch the woman's response. As the devil, in his crafty way, is selling her garbage, here's how he, she responds in verse 2. It says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, she's doing okay. She's quoting God generally correct. She's kind of minimized the generosity. God said, you may eat of every. She just said, we may eat of the fruit. Um, She's doing okay in her Bible memory. But look at this last phrase here. She says to the serpent, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Remember back to 2, 16, 17. Did God ever say they couldn't touch the tree? He never said that. (laughs) She's taken the bait of the enemy, and she is now adding to Scripture. She's now making a caricature of God as the strict, unreasonable, ardent, cruel, and capricious God that's trying to restrict their freedom. God said if we even touch the thing, poof, we're dead. We do the same thing. Anytime we don't like God's laws, we tend to exaggerate his strictness so as to deny any culpability for disobeying it, right? God's law is so unreasonable. His call towards sexual purity, no one can actually do that in 2015. The Bible's call to complete forgiveness to people who is completely unreasonable. Care for the poor? I can't care for all the poor. Certainly God didn't mean I actually am supposed to obey that. I mean, God is just so, it's unreasonable, right? If we can all agree that God's commandments on our lives are extremely unreasonable, we can all sin together and just feel really good about it. That's what Eve's trying to do. God said, I can't even touch the thing. She's exaggerating his strictness. She's minimizing his great and good generosity. And in so doing, um, she's taking the bait. And we're watching Satan take her down the spiral staircase of descent and doubting the word of God. Now look at what the serpent does. Verses 4 and 5, he's going to take it a little bit further. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. First, God caused the woman to doubt the word of God. Second, he twists the word of God. Now he's going to call into, the, into question in her mind the very goodness and character of God. You've heard this lie from the devil, haven't you? God isn't good. If he really loved you, why would he let that happen? You're going to trust that God who let that happen. You're going to trust this God to keep you down with his moral restrictions when he couldn't have prevented that. He couldn't have been there for that. Is God really good? Satan is now attacking the character of God. He's calling God a liar. He's a liar. He said he loves you. He doesn't love you. right? He said if you take the fruit, you will die. You won't actually die. God's just trying to hold you back. It's his scare tactic for keeping you in your place. And what the devil wants her to believe is that sin doesn't have consequences. If you take the fruit, you're not going to die. We've heard that lie, haven't we? Right? God does have boundaries, doesn't he? He says, thou shalt not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not have sex outside of or before marriage. Do not lust. Do not love money. Don't disobey your parents. And Satan will come along and say, that's a lie. You can do all of those things, and sin has no consequences. Okay, so you need to take matters into your own hands because God isn't giving you what you want. So God hasn't provided a godly husband. Go out and get one. God doesn't care about you. He's lying. You will be fulfilled. God hasn't given you a godly wife. Go out and and just find a wife. You don't need to wait for the right. God hasn't given you a fulfilling sex life. Go out and get it. There, There is no consequence. God is trying to hold you down. You're not experiencing the sense of adventure that you think you deserve. Well, have an affair. Get a girlfriend, right? Uh, Get some sort of uh, new addiction or disease. Go to the boats. Do your thing. Uh, uh, Pick up a gambling addiction, right? Go to a new porn website. There are no consequences. God is just trying to hold you back. Only you know what you need, and there aren't any consequences. City Light, it's a lie. It's a lie. Sin always has consequences. It always promises us life, and it always delivers us death. I want you to know that God is a good God, and he loves you dearly. And the restrictions he has for our life are out of his goodness and his generous love towards you. God is for you. He is for your life. Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And the enemy would love for you to believe that God is a liar. And he holds out sin and all of its promises. And time and time again, we take the bait as our first mother Eve does. Look at verse six. How does she respond to the lie? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. First sin to ever enter humanity is right here. What's interesting is in this entire verse, uh, we never see the devil anymore. His work is done. He's caused her to doubt the word of God, to doubt the good character of God. And uh, Eve can take it from there. Do you know we can't blame the devil for our sin? We're pretty good at it on our own, aren't we? (laughs) We're pros. 
She takes the fruit and she believes the eye. The, 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 the narrator here, uh, Moses, takes us into an internal dialogue now with the woman. It says that she sees that it's good for food. She, she says, you know, this is, this is really um, physically a good thing. She sees that it's beautiful to the eye. It's aesthetically appealing. Uh, she sees that it's desirable to make her wise, so it's emotionally appealing. It's, it's uh, rationally appealing. It, it makes sense. And she takes the fruit and she eats it. Sin. Then notice she takes it and she gives it to her husband, who, by the way, where, where's the husband been through this whole thing? Look with me back at verse 6. Put verse 6 up on, on the board really quick. It says she takes the fruit, very bottom line there, and she gave some to her husband, who was where? With her. Passive man, standing by his wife, watching her deceived and fall into sin. He's a coward. When men are passive, the family is corroded, and sin enters the world. What should Adam have done as the leader of his family? Step in. Call a lie a lie. Step between the woman and the devil and say, no, that's a lie. Defend the name of God that the enemy is blaspheming. The man should have stood up, but he did nothing. When the man is absent, sin enters. We see it today. Everything is upside down. The woman follows the serpent, the husband follows his wife, and no one follows God. If Adam listens to God and follows his family, none of this happens. Men, are you leading in your homes? Think about the culture in your house. Is there joy? Is there prayer? Is there scripture? Is there trust? Is there friendship? Do you serve? Are you lazy? Do you model the gospel for your family and laying down your own rights and privileges? Do you love your wife? Are you contemplating getting a girlfriend? This is your responsibility, men. God gave the commandment to the first husband and he failed. How are we doing, men? When husbands are passive and they don't engage, the family is left vulnerable. But when the husband leads, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Like Jesus, our true groom, who steps in between the serpent and his bride, the church, and says, I will take responsibility. I will stand in the way to defend my wife. I won't run off into lesser things and find a girlfriend and find a new addiction and find a new hobby, but I will speak truth. I will defend my wife. Jesus, our true groom, comes and does it for us. And men, that is our model, Jesus Christ. But the reality is, our first father has missed the mark, and ever since, um, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. Men, we are our father's son, and Adam is our father. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see and study the full effects of the fall that come into effect because of Adam's passivity, the temptation of the devil, and sin entering the human equation. But I want to show you um, this morning. I'll let Chris do that one. I've I've had enough of the really angry, mean, depressing sermon today. He's a lot more generous and fun. It'll go better. But uh, let me show you one effect of the fall. One effect of the fall. Verse 7. Here's what happens. It says, The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The fun days of being naked in the garden are over. (laughs) They had wine, they had nakedness, they had good fruit, singing and celebration, but those days are done. Where there was no shame and guilt, there is now shame and there is now guilt. 
Where there was no um, clothes, there is now hiding. Uh, They sew together fig leaves that they might cover their shame. They're embarrassed, they're guilty, they're convicted, and they're condemned. Shame and guilt. This is what we do with our sin too. We know we're guilty. Our first inclination and proclivity is to hide our sin. We sew together fig leaves. From a very early age, we intuitively do this. We hide our shame. If you have little kids, you see it happen all the time. Um, When I hear my kids sinning in the other room, how do you know they're sinning? Because they're giggling. When I hear my kids sinning in the other room and I come down the hall, what do they do? They hide their shame. Vivian, wipe the peanut butter off the dog and hide the scissors, right? (laughs) Quick, hide the matches. Dad's coming, right? We hide. We hide our guilt. We do this. Ever since humanity has been making fig leaves to hide our shame, we do it with our careers. If I can just be successful and financially viable and have a good reputation, no one will lift the hood and understand how jacked up I am. If I can just have the perfect Christian family, everyone reads their Bible and parts their hair and doesn't say a cuss word. It's a, it's a great fig leaf that hides up how sinful and sin-filled I am. Right? One of the biggest fig leaves we have is religion. People go to the church. If I can lead a Bible study, if I can become the preacher, if I can lead the choir, if we can sit in the front row, no one will see the guilt and the shame that is inside of me. We hide with fig leaves our shame. City Light, this is the most depressing sermon ever preached if we stop right here. But let me give you some good news. This is the diagnosis, but in comes the cure. The reality is we don't need a fig leaf to cover our shame. We need a savior to take our shame away. Next week, as we continue on in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see that when man was hiding his shame and running from God, what happens? God pursues man. God comes running after us. When you and I were filled with shame and guilt, God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, comes running after us, and he doesn't hide our shame. He takes it away. He takes our shame away. Jesus, like Adam and Eve, was tempted by the devil. Luke chapter 4 records that for 40 days he's in the wilderness and he is tired and he is thirsty and he is hungry. And our adversary comes with the same ploys that he did against Adam and Eve. He, He causes Jesus to doubt the word of God, twist the word of God, call into question the character and goodness of God the Father. But Jesus Christ stands victorious in our place. He is the mighty one who overcomes the devil. And then I love this. In uh, Hebrews 4, it says he was tempted in every way that you and I were yet without sin. And so where Adam and you and I have failed and fallen into sin and deception and taken the forbidden fruit, Jesus stood victorious. And then in Colossians chapter 2, it says that Jesus took the record of our guilt and he took it away from us. He doesn't just cover our shame. He takes it away. It says he nailed that record to the cross that it might be done away with forever. He says he does so to spite the devil, to put him to open shame. Do you see the beautiful picture of the gospel? We are guilty and covered with shame. We can't hide it, but Jesus alone can take it from us. And he takes the devil who gave us our shame. He takes the shame away from us, and he shames the devil. That is our Lord. That is the good news. City Light, if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you this morning. Would you walk in that freedom? felt like God told me there's some people in the room that have fig leaves all over the place because you are not yet walking in the freedom that is yours and the identity of being a child of God. 
there's such a freedom when we know that Jesus has taken our shame away. It means we don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to be religious or weird or pretend that you're godlier than you are. We can wear our sins on our shirt sleeve, confess our sin, encourage one another with the gospel, walk in newness of life and light. The fig leaves can go away because our shame has been covered and taken away by Jesus Christ. Would you walk in that freedom this morning? No more shame, no more guilt. We don't live in Genesis 3, we live in the New Testament. For some of you, if you haven't trusted Christ and become a Christian, the invitation I want you to know this morning, it stands. You have listened to the devil and you have sinned and your guilt is on you. And in this life, you can cover your guilt with anything you like, religion, atheism, success, your reputation, your career, your intellect, but in the life to come, the facade will come down and you will be exposed. Shame and guilt. But the invitation this morning is this. Would you come before Jesus, no fig leaves, only confession and acceptance. Jesus, will you take my shame? He would gladly give you his forgiveness. That's the invitation that stands for you and I. Would you become a Christian today? City Light, that's a dark passage. <laughs> But against the dark backdrop of sin, we see the light of the gospel breaking in. The one who comes to take away our sin, our guilt, and our shame so that we can walk through this life without fig leaves. City Light, I want to encourage you with this. If you're a follower of Jesus, the shame is gone. And not only that, but the hope stands for us that our Lord is coming back to recreate what was lost in the garden. We see just a picture of the new kingdom now, our sin forgiven, the church community together, walking together with our Lord Jesus, but it's only in part right now. There is a day coming when Jesus will come back and he will restore that community that we experienced in the garden. Isn't it true that we all long for that perfection? We long for that intimacy. Christian, hold fast. Reject the devil, believe the truth, because that day is coming when Jesus will come again in fullness to rule and reign, and we once again will experience the Genesis 1 and 2 realities. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we see in Genesis 3 a mirror into our own souls. We have been duped by the devil, we have believed the lie, and we have fallen into sin. And without you, God, we are Adam and Eve in the garden hiding from each other and hiding from you creating facades and, 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 and fig leaf loincloths to cover our shame. God, but we can hear your voice coming in the garden. The Father comes and says, where are you? You are the God who pursues us. Jesus, thank you that you have come to take our shame away. Thank you that you have come to take our guilt away. Thank you that you are coming back to restore all things to their initial perfect state where there will be no sin, no temptation, no shame, but only perfect fellowship for you. And in the meantime, Lord, we know that we still have a very real enemy who would love to tell us that all of this is religious folklore and nonsense. But, oh, Lord, would you help us to stand firm on your truth? to know the truth of the word of God and the good news of the gospel and to stand confidently in that. Oh Lord, we need your grace to do so and we will trust you for it. In Jesus' good name, amen.